Welcome to the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. Well, Don, we had an interesting conversation today with Patrick, the CEO uh, of Atlantic Lottery Corporation. Uh, I think we wanted to shine a light on just the size and scope and economic impact of that organization in the region. The, the annual revenues of, I think, about $1.2 billion, and almost all of that is recycled back into the economy. Uh, he was telling us they support something like 7,000 jobs uh, across all four Atlantic provinces. They have offices and employment, direct employment in all four provinces, and they turn back hundreds of millions of dollars every year in profits to the four provincial governments. So uh, I think uh, listeners will be interested to uh, hear about the size and scope of uh, Atlantic Lottery in our region. That's one of the reasons we wanted to have Patrick uh, on the podcast to you know better inform people about the economic impact that Atlantic Lottery has. They're more than a lottery, obviously. Uh, you know they play an important uh, role as an employer. They're a head office employer in your hometown, uh, and head offices are, as we know, are important. They're a big consumer of goods and, and services uh, across the region. Um, and I know in my own industry, uh, you know, they were an important client uh, for in, in my business for over 30 years uh, and continue to be to the to the company as it continues on. Uh, and then on top of that, um, you know, they contribute a lot of money back to each provincial government to fund public services that would otherwise have to be paid through taxes, which is a benefit to every taxpayer in Atlantic Canada. And, uh, you know, and then, and then finally, you know, finally, uh, they paid out $11 billion in prizes or something like that over the, since they, they were uh, founded in 1976. And of course that money gets recirculated, uh, back into the economy uh, often quickly, you know, through things like house purchases, um, car purchases, you know, boats, recreation property, gifts to friends and relatives, uh, you know, gifts to uh, charities. So, you know, he was telling us that uh, their economic impact study indicates that each year they, they contribute about $1.5 billion to the economy in Atlanta, Canada. And that's a big deal. Absolutely. Look, I mean, the reality is, you know, gambling gets lumped in with cannabis and and liquor and other types of industries that uh, government need, thinks it needs to control and regulate. And, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. Uh, but if government has decided that it wants to control and regulate gambling legally, um, it's good to have an entity like this. They are focused on uh, ensuring there isn't a lot of abuse of the system and they have programs for uh, people that have a gambling, gambling program. And, and as we talked about, the sort of economic benefits are there. So, I mean, obviously it's gambling. Some people don't like to gamble. Many people don't like to gamble, but uh, they have, I think he was telling us they have about 350,000 plus uh, online customers now, and that's growing. So uh, lots of people do like to gamble. And in my opinion, it's better to have it regulated and controlled in a format like this than to let it sort of run willy nilly. Yeah, and let me differentiate between the word gambling and the word gaming that they, they tend to use. So gaming... There, it's a game of risk. It's, it's you know you don't lose you don't lose money. You spend money, but you don't lose it by continuing to you know spend money on a ticket. But uh, but he did he did raise a, an issue that I I'm, I was aware of when I did work for them, and that is the 
the challenge that uh, offshore illegal gambling sites uh, pose to this region. They take a lot of money out of this region. Um, you know, it's nearing $100 million a year that goes somewhere else for people who want to gamble online. And that's, a, that's, a, that's something that's not going to go away. That's always going to be there. And, um, and uh, you know, they've been, they've been having trouble getting consensus of their four provincial partners to take on that, uh, that segment of the market uh, to repatriate and keep that money here and, and to do it in a, in a well-regulated, safe environment because uh, some of those uh, offshore uh, organizations are really not that safe to be dealing with. So, you know, that's, their, that's one of their big challenges, I think, um, and then an important one uh, to this region, which would actually give more revenue, <laughs> end, up, end up giving more revenue back to the provincial governments to pay for, you know, public services. So the people that have problems with that are, it's really on a moral basis. Uh, people shouldn't be gambling. People shouldn't be drinking, you know, you know, all those sort of things. And like, you know, unfortunately that reality is, will not change. And so it would be, I think a smart move personally, I think with the smart move to, for the Atlantic Canadian provinces to get together and resolve that problem. Here's the other big opportunity. This is the one big opportunity that goes with this that doesn't go with lottery tickets. They have to sell lottery tickets within the confines of the boundaries of Atlantic Canada. For online gambling, they can sell to the world. And if they have, if they have good competitive games, they could actually bring in a lot more revenue from people from somewhere else that could further be used to pay for public services in this region. And that, that to me, is a, maybe the, the kind of hidden opportunity uh, with online gambling. So turn the tables, turn it actually uh, to a generator of export revenue. It's a very interesting concept. But he did say they have a variety of other challenges. They're, it's, they're, they're competing now more than ever for workforce. Uh, there's, uh, you know, as you indicated, the provinces have, uh, have their own demands and they have other sort of technological challenges, cybersecurity. So it's an interesting time uh, uh, to be in that business. And I think the listeners will appreciate uh, the conversation. Yeah. So let's listen uh, to, uh, to Patrick Digg, uh, the CEO of Atlantic Lotto, um, has to say in our conversation. Here we go. Patrick, welcome to our podcast. Uh, thank you, Don and David. It's a pleasure to be here today. So you were appointed as CEO in October of last year following a stint as an interim uh, earlier in the year. While relatively new as the corporation's CEO, you are not new to Atlantic Lottery. Can you tell us a little bit about your career path uh, and how you ended up uh, in, the, in the big chair uh, there at Atlantic Lottery? Yeah, well, after university uh, at UMB in the 1980s, um, I went to work for Thorne, Ernst & Winnie, you know, who, who we know now as KPMG after a whole bunch of uh, mergers and transactions. Um, you know, I studied hard to become a chartered accountant, but, uh, but frankly, I didn't enjoy the work too much. Um, you know, I could, I could see that selling my time and advice to a bunch of different clients um, wasn't really for me. Uh, so I joined a company called Datacore in Moncton. And Datacore was a joint venture between MBTEL and Blue Cross, um, early day IT outsourcing company, that kind of thing. And so I left there after a few years to come to Atlantic Lottery to get some leadership experience as the controller um, of the company. And I had a five-year plan, and then I'd be off somewhere uh, in the private sector. Well, that plan didn't work out too well because I've stayed here for almost 25 years now. And 
when I joined Atlantic Lottery, it was in 1997, and that was um, it was a tumultuous time. So Nova Scotia had given its notice of intent to withdraw from the partnership, uh, and they were citing an unfair distribution of profit. And this was something that was raised by their auditor general. So basically, they didn't feel as though they were getting you know their fair share. And you know, of course, there was a shareholders agreement in place at the time. But the only way to change the way profit was shared is to have all of the parties agree to the new formula. And so this is a zero-sum game, right? So in order for one province to receive a larger share, they have to convince their partners to agree to take a smaller share. And that's uh, no small task at a time when the provinces needed that revenue. They needed to balance their budgets um, and deliver services. So, so here I am. I was fortunate that my vice president at the time, he gave, he gave me this file to work on to see if, you know, we could come up with a solution. And, you know, it took almost three years and dozens of iterations. But we finally landed on an agreement that has stood the test of time. You know, in fact, it, it's still in place today. And so, you know, really for me, that gave me exposure to the board of directors and to the shareholders. And I've always said, if you really want to understand the way a company works, you should probably spend some time in finance, uh, you know, because you get to understand the drivers of revenue and the operating and capital structures, resource allocation, business planning, you know, that kind of thing. And so um, a couple of years later, I was fortunate enough to be appointed as the vice president of finance, you know, and I, I was 34 years old at the time. So frankly, uh, a, a bit, maybe more than a bit overwhelmed, you know, and I probably hit it well, you know, that saying, uh, fake it till you make it. But I absolutely fell in love with the industry. You know, it's a, it's a very romantic notion of winning the lottery. And, and of course, the big contribution that the company makes in the region, you know, and, and I get to work with amazing people, you know, and so as you can well imagine, um, it's just a fun and dynamic industry, and we're changing people's lives every day. Atlantic Lottery is quite a unique organization in Atlantic Canada. It was formed in 1976 as a partnership among the four Atlantic provinces. Why do you think Atlantic Lottery has worked so well uh, over that time, in your opinion? Well, I've heard that Atlantic Lottery has been referred to as the, you know, the crown jewel of regional cooperation. And I, and I, I won't disagree with that. And we really should have a lot more of that when you think about how small each province is in Atlantic Canada. You know, I mean, we do have the Council, you know, of Atlantic Premier, so there are some foundations in place. Uh, but when it came time for the provinces to establish lotteries, you know, back in the 70s, 1976, it certainly didn't make any sense at all to set up and run four separate operations. Because really, to run a lottery, you do need a critical mass, right? So there was a compelling reason, um, you know, I guess, to form the alliance. And, you know, when we pool resources and players, of course, we can offer bigger prizes and, and, and run much more efficiently. But in terms of um, in terms of why it's worked well, it's like any business partnership, right? There there has to be a recognition from the partners that together they can create synergies and they can they can create value that individually they just wouldn't be able to unlock. And you know, I'd say like um, other business partnerships, you know, there are concessions that are going to have to be made individually for the greater good, and it's a constant give and take. You, you can't have four head offices. Um, you know, I think one of the things that, that, that works well in this model, even though each province is a partner in the business, they still have, uh, I'll say, sovereignty over their own gaming legislation and regulations and policies. So at the end of the day, they still get to control what gaming looks like in their province, uh, but they get to benefit from the economies of scale that we can realize, you know, avoiding unnecessary duplication, you know, that kind of thing. And, and maybe another reason 
that Atlantic Lottery works well is that our shareholders don't get overly involved in the operation. You know, I mean, there's a reason why crown corporations are set up. It's because governments, they're just not good at running businesses. It's, it's, it's not their risk focus. You know, it's not their competency set. So, you know, so we set up a crown, you, you put a board in place, you make sure the boundaries of legislation and regulations are clear and you let them go about their business. And, and I know that sounds really good on paper, but um, believe me, it's not easy running a company that has to compete that's owned by four provinces. I, I, David, I, I was uh, telling uh, Patrick earlier that I had a small role to play in what ultimately led to be Atlantic Lotto. When I was uh, doing my graduate work at Dalhousie, I was uh, part of a student consulting company, which actually led me to form my own company, actually. Um, and we were hired by Sport Nova Scotia to do some research on a lottery for Nova Scotia. And they actually established the first, I believe, the first lottery in Atlantic Canada for Sport Nova Scotia, which was a bit of a forerunner to uh, Atlantic Lottery. And so that history, pre, you know, predates even Patrick. <laughs> it's a long time ago, but that was a that was a really fun memory for me. Don, you have your finger in a lot of pies. So, Patrick, <laughs> we we know the the Atlantic Lottery is owned by the four Atlantic provinces, but what's the governance structure? How's that sort of um, uh, managed? Yeah, so probably the most important governing document we have is that shareholders agreement that I talked about. So, you know, that's going to cover off how revenues and costs are shared, and it's going to lay out the role that the board has in terms of um, their decision making authority, right? So, so each shareholder appoints three board members. Two of them are independent from government. Um, I guess you'd say that from the private sector, and then one of them who's not independent from government. In other words, they're a civil servant. So I would describe our board governance as very strong. Um, you know, we've got an independent chair. He's appointed by the board. Number of directors who've completed their ICD designation. So there, so there's some professionalism there. And together, you know, they work with management on the strategic direction, corporate policies. Uh, strong oversight on risk, you know, approving the annual business plan, just typical board stuff. We've got some active subcommittees, audit committee, people in culture, governance, you know, and the like. But one of the governance challenges, though, is that the, the board can only take the approval of new gaming initiatives so far. And then sometimes it needs, you know, additional shareholders to get involved, you know, particularly if it involves things like regulation change um, and policy. So it can get a little bit complicated. And one of the one of the models that we're very proud about as an organization, you know, is just trying to be flexible and, and keeping it all together, you know, it, you know, kind of like a, kind of like a duck that's swimming in the water. You know, what you really see is is on the surface is not really necessarily what's taking place underneath. Let's turn to the <clears throat> economic side for a second. Uh, tell us uh, how much revenue uh, Atlantic Lottery generates uh, in a typical year. Yeah, so let me start with this year. Uh, here we are at the end of January. So we've got about nine weeks left in our fiscal, right? So our, our year end is March 31st. And our top line this year is going to be almost uh, $1.2 billion. And that number is going to put us at about 97% of the target that we had set. And I know that sounds really close, uh, and it is. But when you deal with numbers on this scale, um, of course, that's a shortfall of about $30 million. You know, however, when you look at what's going on around us, when you look at the uncertainty and the closures and, and, and what's going on, it's still a very good number, all things considered. Yeah. And obviously, 
the pandemic's uh, impacted your sales a little bit the last two years, but it's also changed uh, some of the behaviors of people, has it not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the impact of COVID, look, most Atlantic businesses are small and medium sized. And I, you know, I think they're still facing tremendous challenges with COVID. And I, I have to acknowledge how difficult this period has been for you know, small business, and especially in the tourism and hospitality sectors, because many of those operators, they're longstanding partners of ours. And so the, the, the shortfall that I talked about, the shortfall we're experiencing is 100% as a result of the pandemic, right? So first of all, who could have predicted Omicron, you know, but when we set our targets last year, we were hopeful that with these high vaccine rates, uh, we could avoid large scale shutdowns, you know, uh, we did expect some volatility and, and uncertainty, but it was really hard to predict those lengthy shutdowns of bars and restaurants in all four provinces. Um, and, and of course, what that impacts is our video lottery business. And, and that's the line of business where our shortfall is. Um, having said that, though, you know, the, the retail business uh, is on target, you know, and, and holding strong. And our, our Red Shores property that we have in Prince Edward Island had an awesome year. But the, but the real gem in our, in our operations has been the, in the digital channel. And our digital channel is running at about 120% of target. And that's really helping to offset the, the, the VL shortfall. So there is an advantage staying home. <laughs> a little bit anyway. Uh, th there are probably you know two main motivations for creating a, a regional lottery. One was obviously to ensure a regulated and responsible gaming experience for Atlantic Canadians. And one was to help support the public services provided by the Atlantic provinces to their citizens. I know that uh, one of the corporation's marketing strategies has been to highlight the benefits that accrue to the four Atlantic provinces as a result of the profits returned to each, to each of the provinces to help pay for these public services. Now, uh, looking at your material, since 1976, you've returned more than 10 million, 10 billion, sorry, dollars back to the province. That's a lot of money. Uh, how much did each of the provinces receive most recently of that? Of, yeah, yeah. Of that it's, a, it's a big number. We're proud of it. This year, we're going to deliver north of $400 million to the provinces, you know, and, and, you know, that number puts us really close to the profit we delivered just before the pandemic. So definitely, a, you know, a real point of pride for the team. The, the purpose of our company really is, is to make a meaningful contribution to all Atlantic Canadians, right? And so, you know, we're, we're really excited knowing that we're going to come out of this pandemic really poised for growth. And, and this is money that's going back to our provinces at a time when they really need it. So, you know, when you, when you break that down um, by province, New Brunswick and Newfoundland should be in the vicinity of about 135 million, uh, Newfoundland and Labrador at about 125 million, and, and PEI at around 21 million. So I would say that the province in, that's been hit the hardest for our business um, has been Nova Scotia. And that's because of the bars and restaurants were shut down earlier in the first quarter of this year. And then, and then the province that's been impacted the least um, is Prince Edward Island. We're actually growing our business over there. Uh, just one quick question, uh, maybe to clarify. So the profits that are returned to each province, they're based on the sales of each province. Is that right? Yeah, g generally. I mean, there's a, as I said, there's a, there's quite a formula in the shareholders agreement. I mean, basically, you know, if a lottery ticket is sold in a province, they get credit for that and any direct expenses that they incur. And then there's a sharing process for overheads. I got you. Thanks. So the lottery's head office is in Moncton, but you have offices in each of the other three Atlantic provinces. How many employees does the lottery currently have overall uh, in, and in each of the four Atlantic provinces? 
Yeah, well, we, we do have offices in all provinces, um, but these days I'd say they're sitting mostly empty. Uh, I mean, most of our employees have flexibility in their work environment, and right now we're encouraging them to work from home just while this Omicron um, situation is, is still an issue. And, you know, when we made the big shift to leave the office um, March 2020, right, I, I have to say it really impressed me how seamless that transition was for, for our team. You know, we we went home on a Friday, and then 99% of our team was working remotely and effectively by Monday. So we just didn't miss a beat. So just, you know, really impressed with that. Something just with regards to employees, something to pay attention to, um, we're starting to see more progressive employers continue to provide work flexibility where possible. Um, the bottom line is that our, our our workers are knowledge workers, right? Our workforce, they're mobile. They can, they can work for any company from anywhere and and that's relatively new and so this war for talent is absolutely raging um so that so to answer your question right now we have 625 employees working in the business the approximate breakdown is uh, new brunswick has over 300 employees uh, nova scotia has 50 newfoundland has 25 and pei has over 200 uh, and the reason for so many on the island is because uh, we do have a red shores casino and, and racetrack over there that's pretty impressive as a as a large employer. I think in a in an alternate universe, and this is kind of going to what Don has been talking about. Yeah, there could have been some sort of national lottery, and we would have had almost no sort of direct economic uh, benefit or employment here in the region. So that's impressive. Over six hundred employees. Our listeners may be surprised by the size of that workforce, but you have unusual security and technical requirements to ensure safety and integrity of the lottery. Uh, but you also have uh, a staff in new product development and other areas, IT. Can you talk a little bit about your workforce uh, uh, and the diversity of that workforce needed to run your uh, organization effectively and efficiently? Yeah, it's a fascinating business. I mean, uh, on the surface, it, it looks very basic. And, it, and in some ways, I, I, I think it is. I mean, at the end of the day, we sell paper with numbers on them for a buck. We distribute about half of that back in prizes pay expenses, and then the rest of it goes back to the provincial governments, right? And that happens to be about 30%. So, you know, but when you peel that back, it's a, it's a very highly regulated and controlled business. And, and, and that is what adds the, the many layers of complexity to it. Uh, I've often said there are public trust implications with handling over a billion dollars, you know, and, and don't forget, those are small purchases. And so that's spread out over literally millions and millions of transactions. And kind of like a bank, our standard is that we can't lose one. Like we cannot lose a transaction. The entire system that we have of, of lottery and gaming is based on integrity and, and trust. You know, if you buy a ticket, it needs to be in the draw. Uh, so all of those transactions are processed across this massive network that we have throughout Atlantic Canada. And, and that network has more than 10,000 networking assets connected in it. And all of those assets are connected back to, to a number of very sophisticated central gaming systems. And, and so they're operating the retail channel, you know, our network of bars, you know, and, and of course the, the, uh, the 24 hour a day um, ALC and, and our mobile app. So just a big, big part of the business, you know, is, is technology. Um, but we also have a big part of our business in, in this customer facing thing, right? Because if you think lottery isn't a product that people need, it's a fun product. It's a it's a bit of innocent indulgence. You know, it, it, it's a chance to dream, and so the marketing and that customer facing activity really is critical. So now we're into product management and marketing and promotions and social media activity, 
you know, research, managing that network, um, you know, making sure we have product available, paying all of those prizes. Uh, and I did mention, um, you know, I did mention our operation in Prince Edward Island as Red Shore. So, so we employ over 200 Islanders over there, right? So these are card dealers and chefs and servers and paramutual agents and security professionals, you know, and then, and then you, you sort of add on top of all of that, the support functions, right? That you need to run a company like finance and human resources and internal audit and cybersecurity. So, so there's a lot to the business that goes on, um, you know, goes on behind the scenes, I guess you could say. Well, one of the things that we really wanted to do, Patrick, is to really provide a lot more information to our listeners about your economic impact. We don't think it's probably that well understood. Obviously, you have an important role as a major employer in the region, but you also support also support thousands of other jobs throughout the region, beginning with your network of 3,000 retailers that uh, receive uh, compensation of almost $100 million annually in commissions for selling the tickets. And I think for maybe incentives for winning tickets sold in their, in their stores or whatever. But what are the retail trends that you're seeing in terms of lottery sales uh, during the, can- the, pande- the pandemic, especially in terms of online purchase, obviously? Is there... Is there a move away from your retail uh, network that you're seeing? Yeah, um, mo- most of the retail trends for lottery that we saw during the pandemic were driven by, you know, a combination, I guess, of provincial restrictions and then things that are retailers, you know, retailer actions. So, so the biggest change was really where our players were purchasing their lottery products. Um, mm. There was a time, remember, when malls were closed and then when they reopened, there was a reduction in customer traffic. Uh, so, you know, lottery kiosk sales in the malls, for example, you know, I mean, they were down about 50%. Um, mm. You've got grocery and drugstore sales, you know, they were down maybe 30% as, as they shifted during that time towards what was called essential services only. And of course, that doesn't include lottery sales, you know. So what happened was more traffic went to convenience stores and gas retailers, um, you know, and, 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 and those locations did very well during 2020. But then most of that has shifted back since. But the real story of, of traffic is, uh, I guess, like every business almost, you know, COVID gave us a really big push towards uh, digitization, right? So we were already on our way, but, you know, players were looking for a safe, convenient online channel to play in. And we were ready with our platform, our mobile app. Um, here's a great statistic for you. We, we have registered players um, that are on our website, and the number of those players has grown from about 180,000 in 2020 to over 350,000 now. So there's definitely mm-hmm. wow. a demand for that degree of con- convenience, you know, and, um, and when we experienced that kind of exponential growth and that demand, you know, I, we were ready. We were ready with the right platform. You know, it was secure, it was scalable, and, and we had the right games and experiences ready to go and, and offering those to our players. But having said all of that, the, the retail channel is incredibly important to us. Like, it, it is absolutely the foundation of our business. These are relationships that we've had for literally decades uh, with these retailers, and, and we have them in every corner of Atlantic Canada. So, you know, we need to have a strong um, thriving retail channel. It, it, it's critical to our business. And, you know, when, when I look at this year, that channel is going to generate more revenue this year than it did in 2020, you know, just before the pandemic. And then, and then about 95% of the year before that. So, you know, I, I would conclude that there is an impact to retail from customers purchasing their tickets online, but I would say that it isn't material. 
Yeah, and I, I just want to point out, I, I, obviously, you know, I've done a ton of research for the Lottery Corporation over my career. And one of the things I know for certain is that a lot of retailers really uh, depend on the revenue from the lottery uh, as a, a stabilizing force in their business. Isn't that right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, a lot of these are small and medium sized businesses, as I said, and they're employing uh, they're employing people and they're, they're a presence in their community. So, you know, it's a it's a it's a meaningful contribution. I, I just want to add, David, just before you jump in, uh, uh, do you have an estimate of the number of other um, jobs that are being supported, um, you know, through that $100 million that go back to retailers? Uh, any idea? Yeah, I do. I mean, we we have uh, we've done some economic impact analysis, and you know, we we you know, I don't have that number specifically pulled out, but uh, all up, all in, uh, the the number of jobs that we're contributing to Atlantic Canada, it, you know, is seven thousand. Quick question on those three hundred fifty thousand or so customers: Are they all in Atlantic Canada, or in the online platform? Do you allow customers from outside the region? No, we uh, we are uh, we're an organization, unfortunately, that is geographically bound by the by the region. So we're we only sell inside the jurisdiction of Atlantic Canada. Uh, another and Don alluded to this earlier. Another important economic impact is your supply chain or your consumption of goods and services. And I, I know a lot of those seven thousand jobs would be in your supply chain. You're a large advertiser. Uh, you use market research services and so on. Can you provide? our listeners with a view of the types of goods and services that you purchase every year uh, in the region? Yeah. So aside from salaries, right? So salaries, that's 100% spend here in Atlanta, Canada. The major categories of spend, um, you know, thinking back of, 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 you know, what I was saying about the business, the, the major categories are, are not going to surprise you. They're on technology. That's about 30 million. Uh, and marketing, and that's, you know, in the vicinity of 16 million. And whether that's a media buy or the development of a campaign, you know, and, and of course, while our head office, you know, is in Moncton here, we do rent properties in Halifax, Moncton and St. John's, and, and we probably spend about $3 million on, on that. But, um, you know, as a matter of fact, one of the marketing, um, one of the marketing pieces of collateral that we're very proud about is that, that 93 cents of every sales dollar um, that we generate stays here in the region. And so when you think about prizes to players, uh, commissions paid to our retailers, employee salaries, and the goods and services that we buy. And so, you know, don't forget, we're buying from a lot of small businesses. So there's a lot of, you think about um, a design freelancer out there that's a sole proprietor, you know, and, and, and Atlantic Canada certainly has an awful lot of one to three people shops out there. So, so we're supporting all of those. So, you know, over the past five years, our spend inside Atlantic Canada with suppliers averaging around $50 million dollars. Um, but of course, that doesn't include the hundred million dollars it's spent on commissions with with retailers and salaries. So it, it's a big number. Do you have like a policy to buy local or local, or was that just something that's emerged over time? Because that is a very high retention rate if you've got ninety three percent of your spending uh, is cycled back into the economy. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, ultimately, you know, if our purpose is to make a meaningful contribution to Atlantic Canada. Um, you know, where we can, we will buy inside Atlantic Canada. I mean, really, the only material spend outside the region really is is on some gaming supplies that we just can't get here because some of our major gaming vendors are located in the United States. Um, you know, and so so the, so as I as I talked about this economic impact analysis uh, of nearly 7000 jobs, it, it, it's also when you look at the, the direct spend and then you look at the indirect spend and the induced spending. And David, you're an economist, and I know you understand this. Um, you know, we're talking about 1.5 billion dollars in in regional economic activity. 
So one of those benefits is the nearly 11 billion distributed to winners since the inception of the lottery. Do you have any idea or have you ever done any research to figure out how that money cycles back into the economy? Or the, I mean, obviously they end up paying a lot of taxes, but um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, this is the fun stuff, right? This is everybody wants to talk about winners because they've all dreamed about being a winner themselves. Um, I mean, you know, who hasn't done that? So every lottery winner is different. And, you know, we don't have research on how those prizes go back into the economy. Uh, but we do know that when Atlantic Canadians are winning, they tend to stay right here in our region and that prize money stays here too. So, you know, so we would have an even stronger economic impact than, than the numbers that I talked about. Um, you know, last year alone, we we awarded over $600 million in prizes. And of course, you know, that's all throughout Atlantic Canada. But just with regards to winners, you know, Atlantic Canadians, um, I think they're unique. I mean, they care deeply for one another. You know, one of the common things we hear about our winners is that they help out their family members and their friends, and and they put that money into local organizations that that have a positive impact. You know, and, and of course they have fun too, right? I mean, they're they're doing home renovations and they're buying new tows, you know, motorcycles and boats and and you know and things like that. Um, but I do have to share this 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 um, you know we're we're down to earth as Atlantic Canadians and and I love the story of of we had a major winner from Edmonston, New Brunswick, and I think he was more excited about winning the moose draw than he was about his one million dollar <laughs> winner celebration. You know his his quote to us was when I come back with my moose, I'll collect my winnings. Uh, you know I mean you just you can't make that stuff up. It's it's just true classic Atlantic Canada. Yeah. Story. But I, I would say, Patrick, that uh, if you haven't done any research on winners and what they do specifically, there's probably an economic impact that would add to your model. You know, when you think about, obviously, vehicles and homes and uh, recreation property, probably, and there's probably a lot of stimulation of the economy that happens almost right away, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Immediately. You know, and, and David, just a point, there is no tax on lottery winnings. So in so in That's Canada, right, yeah. it, you know, it, the income tax basically says that those that those are not taxable earnings. And so that money goes right into the right into the pockets of our winners. And then it gets redistributed right into their communities. Yeah, yeah but government always gets the tax one way or the other. There's HST, there's property tax, there's, you know, they'll get their, that's a really, actually, that's a really good thing that there's no income tax on that. But the secondarily, they end up getting their taxes one way or the other. <laughs> Spoken like a true economist. Uh, as much uh, as Atlantic, Atlantic Lottery has uh, been a model of cooperation within the region, I, I know it's sometimes difficult to get consensus uh, from your uh, provincial shareholders. You mentioned one where Nova Scotia almost pulled out because they weren't satisfied with what they were getting. Another really important one that I'm personally aware of is uh, relates to online gambling. I recall this issue. Uh, in fact, I think we did some research on this when uh, in the days of when Danny Williams was Premier of Newfoundland and, and Labrador, where you could not get consensus on, on, on hosting uh, online gambling in this region. Uh, now, you shared some information with me prior to this podcast that, you know, the online uh, gaming obviously is uh, is uh, a growing segment of uh, of your sales. I think you went from 2% to 15% in a period of three years or something like that. But online gambling from illegal offshore players is shifting nearly $70 million out of the region every year based on the numbers you gave me. Can you provide our listeners a kind of a big picture summary of what the issue is and, and why it would be important 
to re repatriate and 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 not only repatriate but but provide a regulatory environment that protected uh, consumers. Well, I'm so glad you you gave me the opportunity to talk about this and and you said it. You know, I mean the the criminal code is clear. And what the criminal code says is, in, in a nutshell, gaming is a provincial jurisdiction. And unless an operator is sanctioned by the province, it's not legal. And the same goes for online gaming, right? So over the past several years, we've just seen an explosion of, of illegal offshore operators. And, and they're advertising these free play sites. So their argument is free play sites aren't illegal. But what happens is when you go to the free play site, then you're encouraged with bonuses to sign up to their .com site to play for real money, and that is not legal. I mean, you know, I don't know if you watch sports, but you just you can't watch a sporting event, hockey, football, basketball, without being completely inundated with these commercials. So we've actually sized the Atlantic online sports betting and gaming market. And, you know, our number this year is about $100 million. That market's worth about $100 million. And our estimate is that we currently have 14% of that market. Now, what that means is $86 million is leaving the region. And it's leaving the region untaxed, unregulated. And most importantly to us, players aren't protected in this model. And you know, you probably know that the market has hundreds, if not thousands of these operators, right? So at a 14% share, when, when we sort of see who else is playing in this market, we rank third place, you know, in this market. And, and the biggest irony of this is that we're the only ones that have a gaming license and we're the only ones that are operating legally. And yet we're in third place here in our own backyard. So, you know, mm -hmm. we, we can be better than that. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, our objective well, in, in, in in this market is to be the dominant player. You know, as we should be. You know, because you know that gives an opportunity, you know, for our players to have a safe and regulated alternative. You know, and and, and frankly, that is our mandate. That's why we exist. So right now, we actually have the worst case scenario. I mean, you couldn't dream up a worse case than this, right? We have an abundance of illegal activity taking place without impun or with impunity. And then in three of the four Atlantic markets, we don't have a regulated alternative for players to choose from. So, and, and you know, and that's other than New Brunswick, where we do have a fulsome offering. Now, you know, I believe this is a policy decision that is being considered carefully by our shareholders, but we've not been given that mandate by all shareholders at this point. Yeah, I, I recall at least one of the reasons given for the opposition is related to the moral issue around gambling, right? That was, oh, we can't be promoting gambling. Um, uh, I think that was the big obstacle for at least two of the four provinces at the time, maybe even three. Uh, but the, those reasons probably haven't changed, have they? No, I mean, I, you know, when you when you um, you know when you think about opposition to a regulated model, I think for the most part it, it's ill-informed because the activity is pervasive right now. I mean, you know, it's going on all around us and it's not being controlled one bit. You know, the the, the most common form of opposition to gaming is an increase in problem gambling. And, you know, as I've said, this is absolutely the safest gambling environment that can be offered. And I've seen no evidence of an increase in the prevalence of problem gambling after a regulated lottery has entered the online space. Well, you get, you get a chance to manage it, right? You, you know, every player, you know, how much they're wagering, like, you, you know, you, you can put the protection in. That, that's it. Uh, by that's the it. by, by the way, just one other question on this because I was uh, I've forgotten at the time. But 
uh, I think the proposal was to be able to take uh, gambling from outside the region as well as part of that model. Is that is that not correct? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Is is to repatriate mm-hmm. this play? I mean, you know, the, like for us, you I mean you called it when you said. So right now, the majority of our business is conducted through retailers and at bars, right? So, so, so most mm-hmm. of that play is relatively anonymous to us. So the deeper right. we go into digital channels, the more we know our players, those transactions aren't anonymous anymore. And of course, the more we know our players, we'll be in a much better position to encourage their healthy play. You know, we've got a series of responsible gaming tools, deposit limits, self-exclusions, you know, rating tools, that kind yeah. of thing. That's the most Great. compelling reason why we want to get to know our players because we are transforming the company, you know, and, um, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, we put a lot of investment into the integrity of our systems and into these responsible gambling tools. And I certainly can't say the same thing about the offshore providers. I mean, you know, the, the fact of the matter is we just don't know because there isn't any Canadian regulatory oversight. There's no FinTrack. There's no anti-money laundering reporting going on. So when players come on our site to play, they come with the assurance and the faith that, you know, we're upholding very high standards, you know, of integrity and, and, and responsibility. If they win a prize, we're going to pay it. We're going to pay it a hundred percent of the time. Right. David. Yep. So Atlantic lottery spends a lot of time and effort on new product development. How many new games would you have under development at any given time? And what are your most popular lottery games uh, these days? Yeah. So, I mean, the market's always changing, right? I mean, you know, and, and, and we're innovating and trying to keep up with it, developing new products. You know, I, I, I put that number somewhere between 10 and 15 games in the hopper. Um, you know, the digital channel has allowed us to create a lot more content, um, more games, different experiences very quickly and kind of respond to what, to what our players want. So just, I mean, in terms of popular games, you know what they are, right? It's Lotto Max and it's 649, of course. Those are those are our two flagship national national brands. They've been around for many years. We just have, we have such great brand awareness with them. Um, you know, our core scratch games as well, you know, Crossword, Bingo, Set for Life. I mean, the players that play these games, um, they're very loyal. So we've talked about online gambling and some of the other big trends, but looking ahead, what do you think the future for lotteries, for the lottery is in our region and worldwide. Do you are you optimistic, or do you think you're going to be facing a, a long period of uh, sort of technological and jurisdictional competition? Well, I you know I've got, I have the fortune of meeting regularly with the CEOs of all the lotteries across Canada, and there are five of us, and and we share information very openly, right? So so we don't compete with one another, and I can tell you that the trends are all similar, and there's there's no question our futures are digital. It's where the players are going. It's where all the disruption and the innovation is. It's you know, and it's where the competition is taking place, um, but globally. We're seeing some markets uh, starting to open up to a number of operators instead of trying to maintain the government monopoly. And, you know, I think that can be a really good model if it's properly regulated. You know, I, I think competition, well, competition is always good for the consumer um, and it's usually good for business as well. So, you know, I guess the last thing I'll say, the world's changing too, right? So when you think about trends in the future, uh, people are more socially conscious now than they've ever been. So when you when you have an organization like ours giving back and helping to build a stronger region, so that's always been our mandate, but it's starting to become more and more important to consumers than ever. And so we, we have to be focused on that moving forward. I remember uh, a few years ago, a lot of the discussion around the lottery was the fact that it had an aging population that was not growing. And, and so, you know, to get more revenue you had to you had to get more out of each individual player 
to increase your revenues. Well, that the, that situation's actually changed in the last few years, hasn't it? And one of the most interesting trends that we have in the region is real population growth, growth in line uh, with the national uh, average everywhere in Atlantic Canada, with the exception of Newfoundland and Labrador. Now, clearly, the size of the market is increasing, you know, materially for lottery players. At the same time, however, uh, immigration represents a, a significant portion of popula population growth in the region. I wonder, it, you know, are you seeing an impact of, of that diverse population uh, on lottery sales? You know, are there is there is it harder to get people coming from other countries to buy lottery products? Yeah, look, first of all, just the words real population growth. I mean, that's music to our ears. I know that, right? We Atlantic Lottery needs population growth in general, because as I said, we're geographically constrained, so we can't sell outside the market. So we're absolutely delighted, you know, at this growth, given that the, the numbers were stagnant, and I think declining for a while there. Um, but diversity of the population is wonderful. You know, we can we can be nimble and adaptable to the changing face of our players. Again, I talked about the digital channel allowing us to do, to do that. And, you know, we've had just we've had a number of winners who have recently immigrated to our region and it is exciting to meet fellow Atlantic Canadians and experience this diverse community um, you know that we're a part of you support a lot of different kind of community causes Do you want to just make a comment on on the on, on what your focus is and in terms of the the, the things that are you're currently supporting yeah so I mean you know we um covid was a real challenge for us because giving back to communities and community festivals at the grassroots was a really big part of who we were and of course every single one of those events during covid was canceled and so we we put in place some some online um opportunities for for charities to come on and you know we had players kind of vote for their favorite one and we were able to allocate some funds out that way but but there's but there's no question that 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 we have a tremendous sense of pride in giving back to communities all over Atlantic Canada it's absolutely what we do we're committed to doing it in the future Future. Um, it's a big part of who we are, right? I mean, you know, again, back to making a meaningful contribution to all Atlantic Canadians, um, you know, we can have a big impact in this manner and, you know, we're, we're, we, we just love doing it. Last question, Patrick. I uh, had the opportunity to, to talk with your IT or your HR manager a few weeks ago, and I understand there's a real challenge with IT talent because salaries are taking off among your competitors or, or competitors for that talent, not competitors in the lottery sector. Uh, what would you say your biggest challenges are moving forward? I assume HR is one, but what would you say the biggest challenges are over the next four or five years? Yeah, we, we have a few headwinds, I guess, you know, that we have moving forward. The first one isn't new for us. It's balancing player relevance, and, you know, in the pace of market developments. And, and that's always going to be a challenge for an agent of the crown. So that's something that, 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 that you know, we're, we're going to need to deal with continually. It's, it's not a new challenge for us. Um, and, and, you know, and then, you know, as we, as we talked about competing with these illegal and unregulated operators that, that are globalized, you know, and, and, you know, we're, we're, we're constrained, but, I'm, but I am glad you, you, you raised talent because it's a, it's a concern, you know, attracting and engaging and retaining talent. We've got this competitive virtual work world going on and, and that's absolutely a common thread across almost every business leader I've spoken with. So, so we, we have to compete on culture. Uh, we have to create, you know, a rewarding work experience. I talked earlier about being flexible um, with with how we deal with, with you know, with employees. Um, but you know, it, it's we 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 know we have to provide a, a rewarding work experience. Make sure that our employees have a real sense of pride in what they do, and that they feel as though they're part of something bigger. Uh, the culture thing is going to be challenging, however, isn't it? If you have to, if too many people prefer to work at home, it's hard. You know, culture is built around people being together. 
right? And I think that's, you know, we've had this uh, discussion on other podcasts. You know, that's something that uh, it'd be interesting to see kind of what the distribution is between like a, a hybrid, some sort of hybrid model where you work part time in, in the office, you work a few days at home, but you still get the, the impact of working together, which I think is really where culture comes out of. And, and, you know, every organization, including Atlantic Lotto, got to have to figure that part out, right? Oh, you're absolutely right. I can tell you what our numbers are because, I mean, we, we're, we're, we've gone through the process. So we've got about – we're going to have about 40% of our team working pretty well full-time in the office. Uh, we're going to have about a third of them working uh, mostly remote, and we're going to have um, about 20, 25% of them uh, are going to be working uh, this hybrid model. And so, okay. you know, we're going to have about two-thirds of our team in the office, but I'm, I'm convinced that that other third – um, is is going to find itself, you know, wanting to come into the office to connect because human beings are social animals, and you know, and, and we're better when we're together. And when you talk about culture, you know, and 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 wanting to be part of something bigger, there's absolutely no question in my mind that that that's where it's going to head. Having said all of that, we do we do need to be flexible because it it you know it's it's starting to become you know a point of differentiation for some progressive employers, and so it's it's you know it's it is flexibility, I guess, is the name of the game. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us today on the Insights Podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot, Patrick. It's great to have this conversation. All right. Thank you for having me uh, and giving me a chance to tell our story. Have a great day, guys. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.